Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 168. For the 8th of October, 2014, I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin once again. Hello, Chester. And I'm in Vancouver, so the podcast may sound like a throwback, but uh, I'm, I'm finally back in the office. So we can tell where you are by the precise hum. Maybe you can do a kind of geolocation by air conditioning spectral analysis, can you? <laughs> that might be an interesting paper. Uh, It'd be a lot more interesting than some of the things I've seen popping up at conferences, like people coughing up um, Zero Day at DerbyCon related to bad USB. Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? I don't know what to say other than how I wish they hadn't done it. I mean, we knew this was possible. I get the whole thing with full disclosure, that now nobody can sit on their hands. We don't have to worry about whether the bad guys have discovered this before the good guys, because we all discovered it at the same time. And if you haven't been following the whole bad USB story, it's the idea that many, if not most, USB devices that you use include some firmware which is required to make the device do what it's supposed to do. But once you've plugged the device in, the firmware is overwritable from your computer without warning. And that's a bit of, as I called it, a catch 16, which is a catch 22 in hexadecimal. Well, the real problem here for me is that it makes sense perhaps when it's a software bug. You know, if we go back to Shellshock or Heartbleed where... We say, oh, wow, you know, there's millions of websites and we really need to light a fire under these sysadmins to get them to go out there and apply the new version of OpenSSL or Bash, that kind of thing. In this case, we're talking about a fundamental flaw in an entire architecture, right? This, this is how nearly every USB device works. And it's not something that can actually be fixed in the field, per se. Like, we almost need a, a new specification, right? Yes, the devices that you have are going to remain in that state because, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't a firmware update that you could apply if you were cautious that would cause this problem to go away. The bad guys could come along and reflash the firmware that you reflashed because it's not locked down in any way. But the idea of saying, sort of, nye, 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 here's how you do it, yeah, I think they overstepped the mark on this one. Would that they had not? Yeah, well, we have to do something, and uh, it's kind of unfortunate that the new USB standard, I can't remember what it's called now, but the one with a reversible connector very similar to the uh, Thunderbolt connector that Apple users have become familiar with, is already kind of through the planning stages, and it may be too late for it to become part of the specification. But of course, that doesn't prevent device manufacturers from choosing to do the right thing and, and shoring up the security of their devices, whether it's in the specification or not. Yes, in fact, there, quite a few people have suggested on Naked Security for, you know, the low end of the market, say the, the USB memory sticks. How about going back to the old sort of PROM days? The manufacturer burns in the firmware at the time that they're making the device, then they blow a link on it, and that's that. If there's a bug in the firmware, the device is inexpensive enough that you're stuck with buying a new one. But then... As long as you decide you can trust the firmware, you can trust it indefinitely because nobody can ever change it. And I think that would be a, a, a good low-cost alternative. Now, it'd be impossible to have a chat-chat without a breach story. I think we had one. Well, it's possible, I guess. But it, it seems wrong uh, to, to ignore the breaches, especially when we're talking about impacting 76 million households. 
in this case, J.P. Morgan Chase is disclosed uh, through a financial disclosure with the regulators in the United States that they had hackers breach their network in June of 2014 and made off with 76 million households worth of addresses, telephone numbers, emails. They're not saying um, that any financial information itself was stolen. They're saying no social security numbers, no birth dates. Uh, etc. But it, it's still quite worrying, isn't it? Yes, and it does seem an irony that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase itself has chosen to put in that financial statement that went to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. They've said, don't worry, we're continuing to vigilantly monitor the situation. I also found an irony in them sort of saying in that statement, oh, well, don't worry, uh, our customers are not liable for unauthorized transactions if they if they alert us promptly. You're thinking, gosh, how prompt you have to be. Would uh, would four months be okay? Yeah. If you're a Chase customer, you do business with Chase, um, maybe you need to stay vigilant. Uh, but I, I don't know that these alerts actually mean that much to those of us who pay attention to security, which is hopefully we recognize that we're always under uh, a phishing attack or somebody impersonating someone or all these types of things, and we should always be cautious regardless of whether we think we've been involved in one of these incidents or not. Now, we ran out of time last week to talk about it, but there was another uh, situation with a a large number of credit cards being stolen. In this case, it was uh, through an organization called Signature Systems that is an outsourced payment provider that, uh, I guess, handles the payment processing for a lot of small and mid-size chains, you know, franchise restaurants, this type of thing. Uh, Many Americans heard about it as the Jimmy John's breach. Uh, Jimmy John's being a sandwich and submarine shop in in the Midwest of the U.S. Unfortunately, uh, this company, Signature Systems, decided that remote access, the good old story, would be very, very convenient because obviously it's much easier to look out for security problems on your remote networks if you can actually get in and look around. Um, Unfortunately, it seems that one user had one account with one password that gave him access to more than 200 point-of-sale systems in Jimmy John's franchises, plus more than a hundred other restaurants around the U.S. um, that were all compromised, apparently through one account, one password. You think that perhaps they should go and watch our How to Pick a Proper Password video? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that after the alerts going out from U.S. CERT and other similar operations around the United States being popped with the exact same kinds of problems. In fact, there were even specific alerts related to the malware called Black Paws warning people about shared passwords and remote access being exploited by criminals, um, that this still happened. Yes, there's no excuse for a situation where the fact that Jimmy Johns has been breached because this password is known, there's no excuse for that meaning that you should get breached as well with the same password. That's unacceptable. You know, the obvious question to ask is, where was the two-factor authentication? That would have helped an awful lot in this case, as far as I can see. Pretty much would have prevented the breach altogether. Yeah, we, hear, we, we see that all too often, although uh, sometimes, certainly, uh, it can be difficult to implement two-factor when you're using something like VNC, which doesn't necessarily have that functionality built into it. You have to implement proxies in front of it and that type of thing, and it does increase costs. And that's always one of the challenges with security, is trying to balance cost and convenience with risk and and breach, right? Well, 
the cost of a couple of hundred dollars for some kind of appliance that can provide a VPN block before you reach each individual network has to be seen against the cost of going to potentially dozens of your customers and saying, oh, I'm really sorry. Remember that really lovely meal you had here the other day that you enjoyed so much? Unfortunately, there's an unhappy ending. Well, that leads us to reporting problems. We see that there's been a, a bug fixed in the Bugzilla project, which uh, Bugzilla is well known as the open source bug tracking tool released by the Mozilla Foundation, uh, famous for the Firefox web browser. And well, I mean, I guess just beginning the story, even thinking about it, I'm going, okay, so there's a bug in Bugzilla. Do I file a bug in Bugzilla to bug the bug in Bugzilla? Yes, I had the same sort of reaction when I saw this story, and I knew I had to write about it because I figured, you know, if you're allowed to chuckle at security holes, this is one of those. And as my headline said, Bugzilla Bug Tracker Fixes Zero-Day Bug Revealing Bug. I may have overdone the word bug a little bit there, but it is an irony. It turns out that you can sign up for Bugzilla using an email address that shouldn't give you the right to see everything, because it's not what you might call an insider's email address. But when it comes to the last minute, you can actually give a completely different email address, you know, which marks you as an insider. It's not the end of the world, but it could turn a privately disclosed vulnerability into a publicly available zero day at worst. So if you are using Bugzilla, this one is a patch that you definitely want. It raises a point that I talked about at the panel that I chaired at the Virus Bulletin Conference uh, last month. And, you know, it's an interesting problem, right? Open source projects, how do you disclose responsibly? Do you file a bug in Bugzilla? Do you, do you look up the project on Twitter and try to figure out who project leads are so that you can try to safely disclose those zero days? I mean, there's a lot of debate about how to handle that when we're talking about an open source project, especially after things like Shellshock and Heartbleed. You know, when it's Microsoft or Sophos, it's reasonably easy to figure out, okay, go to the website, you search for vulnerability, you know, there's a, a process that's outlined and how you disclose things. You immediately get a response back from someone whose job it is and is paid to get back to you as a researcher and, and kind of establish protocol for how we're going to work through this problem to a, to a, a hopefully a satisfactory result for everyone involved. When it's open source, you know, you don't want to say anything publicly because you don't want to tip off people that there's a flaw that they might exploit. But on the other hand, who do you contact? And does that open source project even have a process? Do they have enough money or resource or time to operate a procedure? Uh, it gets really complicated, doesn't it? It does, Chester, and I guess the other side is that actually there are people who would like to disclose issues or talk about potential problems, but they, even though what they're doing is something that, you know, they're thinking, oh, we're pointing out a flaw in this company's product, they would like to remain anonymous. So there's also that problem that, you know, if you disclose it, will you then become part of some global discussion where you're outed as the person who found the XYZ problem, when actually all you wanted to do is have a calm and quiet conversation with some individual inside the organization in the hope that you might be a little bit of help. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the closed source community hasn't done itself any favors in a lot of cases by um, rejecting a lot of reports or, or downplaying things or refusing to respond. 
But on the other side, the open source community, um, you know, is often challenged by the, the very culture of everything being open, when in some cases, um, a little bit of uh, discreet behavior could be beneficial. Having an open source project doesn't necessarily mean that all the information about every aspect of that has to be open all the time. I guess there might be projects like that, but provided that's abundantly clear beforehand, then you can decide, do you want to use the product, knowing that if somebody else finds a problem, everyone will find out at the same time? Do you regard that as more likely to get you a fix quickly or more likely to have crooks knocking on your door quickly? I guess you can at least make that informed decision if it's abundantly clear. Yeah, and there's a lot of complexities around this. I, I, I'm working on some research related to iPhone and Android right now, and I'll be publishing some of that really soon. And one of those challenges comes when you buy hardware devices, right? Whether they're open or closed source is kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, when you buy a physical thing that has a flaw in it, back to the conversation we had about bad USB earlier, um, you know, is there an obligation to provide fixes, right? Like, you know, I, I'm looking at the stack of Android devices and iOS devices I'm fortunate enough to have here in my office to do research on, and I'm going, okay, so this one gets bug fixes, this one doesn't get bug fixes, this one might be getting bug fixes, but the company that makes it won't tell me. You know, it, it, it leaves things in a rather tenuous situation sometimes uh, for people reporting bugs, but we'll leave that for a future discussion. I'll use this opportunity to conclude Software Security Chat Chat 168. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, uh, on the TuneIn app uh, via RSS, or over at soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.